Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 2, Episode 44, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. I kind of stumbled there a little bit because I just realized, is this Episode 44? I think it's Episode 44. 44. We're getting confirmation from Mission Control that this is Episode 44. Excellent. Well, today, the Becky Nader's back. Everybody say hi, hi to Becky. So she was replaced by this cool British guy yeah. last episode. He's so really... I don't think he's quite as cool as you, to be honest. No, probably I don't think not. so. Probably I mean, not. what he sounds cooler. Yeah, he's got his is, he's got his like, accent going for him. But yeah, it's totally unfair. If I sounded British, I would sound a lot cooler. I bet you have a really terrible British accent too. If you I try can't it. do accents, I just it's. We were talking about this. Remember earlier. That little boys, like when they play, they make sound like sounds and like uh-huh. little girls don't do that. You were trying to explain why you had no idea how to make a spooky sound during yeah. our month of the supernatural. Yeah. And I thought that was odd that Becky could not make a spooky sound. And she came up with this, she and Steph, our friend, came up with this intricate, smart sounding explanation for I this. Think it's legit. That girls can't make as many sort of sound effect sounds as, as little boys can. So. Well, little boys just naturally, when they start playing with cars or trains, they like make the sounds of the cars and the trains, and little girls just sit with their dolls and don't make sounds. So. Yeah. Okay. You have two little girls. I do. Well, not anymore, no. but I did. So we'll, we'll go with that. Well, today, this whole month, uh, we're going to kick off today the, a whole month of focus on the kingdom of God. I don't know why. What I said, is I the kingdom of God? <laughs> when you say the kingdom of God, you have to say it like that: the kingdom of the God. The kingdom of God. So, and that, in fact, isn't that kind of how we hear it when we hear it in the church? Because we hear the kingdom of God, and and we kind of nod our heads. Oh yeah, I know what that is. And then if you stop to think about it, you go, "Well, what is that? <laughs> is it like big, like the gates, the big gold gates that you picture, like in the Wizard of Oz, going into heaven? Yeah, like the Wizard, like of the Oz. end of the it Yellow would Brick be Road. Like that. I yeah. think so." Like, it, you know, it has a fence around it of some sort. Maybe there's, like, it's in the clouds, possibly. Yeah, there's a lot of marble. Lots that's of what, marble. That's what I picture is a yeah. lot of, like, marble floors and... Streets made of gold. Yeah, flowing with milk and honey, which actually, that would be sticky. And angels singing If you had to time. step over streams that were made out of honey, yeah. there'd be a lot of mess. So yeah, that would be sticky. So th- this is all, you know, we're trying to say... That the kingdom of God is a phrase, it's jargon actually in the church, but it's one of those deals where it, the meaning of it is hidden because we think we know what it is, we don't slow down. So I thought we could start off today by talking about our experience of royalty of any kind, because when Jesus says the kingdom of God, he's implying a royal order of government. And for those of us in the U.S., We've never experienced a royal order of government. In fact, we established our country to get away from a royal system of government. And so we don't really, we can, we throw around the word king and kingdom as if we knew what that was. And we really don't because we've never had personal experience. But I have had myself some minor connections to royalty in my life. Like I did see the changing of the guard 
in London when I was there. Yeah. So I saw a lot of the pomp and circumstance and the white horses with fluffy, hairy feet pulling ornate carriages and guys with big, huge, tall, black, puffy hats that look like Q-tip hats um, who are not supposed to show any emotion. I saw all this pomp and circumstance and all this stuff changing the guard. And I did see, um, must be like, I don't know, 20 years ago now or something like that. I was in New York City with my wife. We were standing in line at a Starbucks. Oh, actually, I was standing in line at a Starbucks, and she was still coming out of a play. We kind of split up and saw two different plays, and then we were going to come back together to Starbucks and talk about our experience. So she was still in the play. I was standing in line by myself at a Starbucks, and who walks in behind me but JFK Jr.? And I, I like, glance behind me, I thought, that can't be. Oh, JFK Jr. is standing behind me. So I thought, oh, Bev grew up on the East Coast from an Irish Catholic family. So guess which family was a big deal when she was growing up? So I thought, oh, Bev's not here. She's never going to believe me that JFK Jr. is standing behind me. So when I got my Starbucks, I went to a table, and I surreptitiously set up my camera so that he, it wouldn't look like I was taking his picture. I just kind of pointed it in his direction and then just kind of looked away and clicked. So the photo of him is somewhat blurry and like he's not framed right, but it's certainly JFK Jr. Was this a real camera or was this your flip phone? It was a real camera. A real camera. Okay. It was a real camera. I was imagining you with your flip phone. No, but... but do they even take photos? I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, they probably do, but not as good as my real camera. So that that is... I, I always, The reason this is a royalty story is because I always tease my wife and say, the Kennedys are America's royalty. Whenever she brings up anything about the Kennedys, I always say, America's royalty. So I had almost... I mean, he might have breathed on me, so I might have been in the airspace of America's royalty at one time, but that is pretty much the extent of my connection with royal stuff. What about you? I don't think I've had any royal encounters. None whatsoever. I mean, I, obviously, I, I, you know, when I'm in line at the grocery store, I will read the headlines about, you know, Kate and, you know, their brood of children that they're having and how beautiful the dresses are. I always love just how beautiful they're dressed and the way that the queen is dressed, and I think that's fascinating, but I've never had any actual encounters with any royalty not even i mean i saw i saw president obama um at a rally when he was running um at csu and he we were pretty close because i so, was with people who so the president had a press you know yeah. thing but that's not really you know that's more of a democracy the, yeah, the, well the president is like the closest we come to like a royalty mm -hmm. figure i guess you could say that is true but we mostly have no idea really, yeah. what it is to live in a kingdom or even be friends with a king. I mean, come on. Oh. So even when we hear about kingdoms and kings around the world, it's usually in the context of they're just a figurehead, like that. what's true in England. They're, they're part of a, a very important cultural tradition, but they don't have any power yeah. to do anything. And that's true in most countries that still have a king. I, th I think I just heard in Thailand, their longtime king just passed away, and they've been in mourning for weeks uh, over him, and there were people waiting in in line, kind of sleeping overnight for three or four days to be at his memorial procession, and so this king was beloved. So sometimes you hear about a country, not usually one that ha is a big player on the world stage, that still has a king, and maybe they like their king, like I guess they did in Thailand, but... 
we're pretty far removed from this whole deal. So here's what's ironic. Jesus talked incessantly about the kingdom of God. <laughs> I mean, it was it was the primary focal point for his teaching and for what he said he was bringing. He said he himself was the kingdom of God, so that when you were in his presence, you were experiencing the kingdom of God. He talked about it all the time, and we'll talk a little bit more about where the kingdom of God shows up in the Bible, but I thought we could create an on-ramp today for the two episodes that will follow by just thinking through what are the aspects of a kingdom and a king that we are familiar with, or what are some metaphors that will help us to understand from our everyday life, or from stories we've read or films we've watched that help us to understand what a kingdom is like. You had one that you were talking about today, Becky, about your experience in Mexico. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah, I grew up about 40 minutes from the Mexican border, and my my dad just had a real passion for Mexico. So we spent, I mean, I'm talking probably by the time I was six years old, um, just about every other weekend, we were heading across the border. We had a house, and when I say a house, it's, it was a shack on the beach that was basically a a small mobile home that was built off of. My sisters and I usually slept on the roof. We had an outhouse um, where we had to go to the restroom. Um, so it's not really on any travel brochure. No, is what you're saying. yeah. Uh, the beach was beautiful, and we spent a lot of time there. But we also spent a lot of time in the actual community. So what we would usually do is we would go down across the border on a Friday night. We would spend. Most of the day Saturday doing some sort of service, um, either at an orphanage or at a hospital. My dad was a professional contractor, and so he would go down there to basically put in plumbing lines or um, rebuild structures um, that were falling apart, fix leaks, that kind of thing. We also brought supplies across the border. And then our treat was that on Sunday... We would get to go surfing for a while and hang out and then usually head back across the border. During the summer, we spent weeks there at a time. And so I got pretty familiar with the difference between the culture in Mexico than it was in America. And one of the things that was very different is that in Mexico, you don't own the land. So you can have a house um, on a piece of land, but you don't own it. You can lease it from the government and they can take it back from you. Um, whenever they want. And oftentimes what was so fascinating to me is when you would drive down the coast of Baja, you would pass all of these beautifully half-built um, resorts. They, so they looked like they were planned to be some sort of beachfront resort property, beautiful stonework. And what would happen is you'd get closer and you would realize it never got finished. They were just abandoned projects. And my dad explained to me that it was because a lot of times what would happen is, um, and, and they do have some sort of democracy, a presidential election, but it's a very corrupt government. So you may have somebody who comes into power and they really get it. They know this is valuable beachfront property. It could really help our economy if we could put up one of these resorts. And they would get halfway through that process and then some other government or a new president would be elected that didn't have the same ideas and they would just take that property back and that was that you lost everything in those situations um and so it made me realize just what a what an environment that created of hopelessness uh, you saw a lot of hopelessness um in Mexico because why would you work so hard if just one day 
Um, everything was taken from you. And a lot of the, the houses of people's, people's actual houses, they don't spend a ton of money on the actual structure because they know that at any moment it could be completely taken away from you. So you see a lot of houses that are built out of like tires or just built out of temporary type structures that you would never really consider to be um, something that you would keep. So You know, I think it really, it gave me a a big wider perspective of what a difference it was to live in America where we take pride in ownership. You know, we own our property and we own things. We almost create little mini kingdoms for ourselves. Um, And we feel like if if something like that happened to us where we were in a business deal and we had the rug pulled underneath us, there would be a legal system in which we could go and get our money back. And we could get justice for that situation. So what a difference to live in a situation where you don't have any power. Yeah, and, and what I really love about this story that you're telling is uh, we're talking about royalty and, and kingdoms, and, and Mexico did, doesn't have a king. It's no. not royal, but what you're talking about is a fundamental difference in the culture, yeah. kind of a base-level expectation of what life is really about, that you get you only get when you go to a really different culture like you did, and where things that we take for granted, this is the way things work, they don't work there. And for us coming into that kingdom, we might, you, I'm sure, thought this like, wow, I don't know if I could ever live here, mm-hmm. where you can't own property. That that would be intolerable to me because of what my expectations are growing up in a different culture. Yep. Well, that is exactly what we're talking about. The the difference that a kingdom of God culture presents to us as, as people who've kind of grown up and become acclimated outside of the kingdom of God, we've really been formed by the kingdom of this world. So when Jesus brings the kingdom of God with him, it's as disorienting as that experience of, I can't own private property? What are you talking about? So it, it also, cultures express values. They express beliefs and truths about the, the truth about human beings and the truth about God, even. I mean, one of the differences that's interesting, uh, when we, this last week we had the Future of the Church Summit here at our building. It was, it was sold out. It was a packed room. Yeah. It's a fantastic experience. We'll put a link to next year's Future of the Church Summit. For those of you who are listening now, whether you're a layperson in the church or you're a leader in your church, this is an incredibly valuable experience mm-hmm. to be part of this conversation, because we bring in... I mean, we brought in some extraordinary people. We had the president of World Vision as on a panel. He wasn't a keynote speaker. He was part of the conversation. We had one of the top leaders in World Relief, these two people talking about the issue of immigration and refugees in the world and the Christian response to that, which uh, was just fascinating and blew my mind to listen to these guys. When we had my friend Johnny Baker from the UK and a guy named David Haskell, who's a professor in Canada, who's a sociologist who said some mind-blowing things as well. We have these guests that come, and they're not there to talk at you. They're, they're there to be instigating the conversation. So we're talking about some of the differences between, for instance, Canada and, and the UK and the United States and what's going to happen in the Church, because in Canada and the UK, the Church is, like, decimated. Yeah. And so one of the questions was, do you think— that this is where America is headed to, because there's a lot of... Uh, I, I myself have experienced going to England and thinking, wow, this is like 20 years ahead of us. We need to be thinking now about what's happening here. So the, what was interesting is David Haskell said, 
The di- one of the big differences between Canada and the United States is that your Constitution recognizes a belief in God at its fund- foundation, and Canada's doesn't. So some of the things that have happened in Canada, I don't believe are going to happen in America, because you have a fundamental, fundamentally different way of seeing government than we do, and it has led to a steeper decline in Canada than I believe will happen in America. Well, I had never thought about that before. So governments promote values mm-hmm. and a culture that can form you, and it's a profound, immersive effect. I was thinking about this earlier today when we were talking that I, I love the whole Lord of the Rings mythology. Um, I'm not a nerd about it, but sometimes people think I am, but I love it because it's such a powerful mythology that Tolkien created, and Tolkien's a follower of Jesus. So what he was not intending to create a metaphor where this character equals Jesus and this character equals Peter. He wasn't trying to create this analogy. He was trying to create a world that embraced the kingdom of God. That was his intention. And what strikes me about the story of Lord of the Rings is essentially it's the story of a man who's broken and living in shame because of what his ancestors have done and what he thinks he's inherited. So he's supposed to be the king. He is the king, but he refuses to take on the role of king. He will not step into his role, and therefore they have a caretaker taking care of his kingdom instead of him. And what the story shows you along the way is, wow, you just kind of fall in love with this guy. He is such an extraordinary person, so brave, so committed, so willing to die for his friends, so full of love, grace, and wisdom, that all you want is for him to get past his brokenness so that he can step in to be who he really is, because you know as soon as he does, life's going to be better for everybody. But the, the real tension in the story is, will this guy, will he? Will he step into who he is? And then arrayed against him is a force of evil in the story that is trying to extend the kingdom of evil in the world, and you get a, you get a snootful of how evil this evil king really is, and how that evil king treats people as just assets to be thrown at to, in order to win victory, and it's, it, it's a stark portrayal of what a kingdom ruled by evil looks like, feels like, and what it is to be a person in the midst of that. So it sets up this tension, will this good king step into his role and assume authority in his role so that the world can be saved from the kingdom of darkness? So it's it's such a, a powerful narrative, and as you read it or watch it on film, it it taps into this deep hunger we have for a good king. All of us have this uh, hope, even if it's been dashed, that that we might uh, see in our lifetime the impact of a good king in our life. And I think what's important here is to think through, okay, in America and pretty in, in all of the Western world, we live in democracies, and those democracies were created as a bulwark against the sin of human beings. So like in America, we rejected the... Uh, a royal form of government in favor of democracy because we had experienced the excesses that a royal form of government can exact on its people. If you don't have someone who's a king who is perfectly good, you're in for trouble. Mm -hmm. 
it, it can be a disaster. It can be destructive. We have plenty of examples throughout the world history of kings who were not good people, who wreaked destruction on their people. And so people rose up and said, we don't want any kings anymore. We want the power to go to the people so that by sheer doling out of this power amongst many people, we can keep this from ever happening again, where one person has all the power. Well, that all makes sense unless the one person is perfect and good in every way. Which is, I think, hard for us to believe. We were we we're going to do a whole episode on this, but there's probably not any person that you've ever voted for in in the entire time that you've been um you know participating in government that you thought I trust this person with my whole heart I'm going to submit everything to them and yes. I think that's one of the things that makes it hard when when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God and that he's the king and the ruler and he's using this word you can see probably these people were like not another king yeah you know we've had enough of these kings they're not very good to us um, and so, and even I think in our, even though we don't have kings, we have presidents, we still feel a little bit like, can I trust you? Can I really trust you? And we basically think we can't. We, yeah. we come into yeah. it with that sort of a low level of cynicism. Yeah. We know they're going to screw up. We know they're, they're not going to do everything we hope for. We know that they're, they have character flaws. Every president has. So... Do we really want to give all of ourselves? I know people that work on political campaigns uh, create, uh, generate a tremendous passion for their candidate, but if they're really honest with themselves, are they going to trust their very life to these people? It's hard for us to do that. Yeah, it so, colors our. It just colors our our perception, and so that's why I think it's really under important to understand fundamentally what was a kingdom and why was Jesus so set on talking to us about the kingdom of God and then and then comparing it to the kingdoms that had been on earth. Right. And and he's in making this claim and talking about the kingdom so much, he is trying to highlight this truth that the only the reason this will make sense for you is if I'm perfectly good. I am good in every way and that I love my creation and I love you to death. The only way this makes sense to live in my kingdom is if you're convinced of that about me. So uh, sometimes I compare this kind of um, idea of bringing the kingdom or living in the kingdom to, um, like if you were a family that took in a Japanese exchange student, for instance, and this, I just picture a girl, (laughs) so a teenage girl from Japan who's never been outside of Japan and then comes and is sitting at your dinner table. And she has to learn the cultural customs of America, and you have to learn the cultural customs of Japan because you, you all of a sudden have a conflict of cultures. And so in America, when we greet people, we don't bow, but they often do in Japan. So it's easy to offend someone in their culture if you don't really realize what, what a certain action conveys to them. For me, it's it's like when Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God to earth in his person, he's attempting to help us to understand a culture that is so distant from our own that its, that its traditions and values seem kind of odd to us. We don't understand them from the inside out. So he's trying to help us, like, like I would help that Japanese foreign exchange student, I, I would try to walk her through, 
okay, when you do this, that, that's what it means. When somebody hel- holds out their hand to shake your hand, it, it's common for you to also reach your hand out and shake their hand. It's a common form of greeting and welcome. Um, so it, it's th- those kinds of things that you would want that, that foreign exchange student to understand. Well, Jesus is wanting us to understand the differences in his kingdom. So just a little bit more about um, how much this is a dominant message for Jesus, and then we're going to jump right into some Kingdom of God uh, comparisons that Jesus makes. Most Bible scholars and historians would say that the Kingdom of God is the primary primary focal point Jesus has in, in throughout the Gospels. Historian Michael Grant says this, "...every thought and saying of Jesus was directed and subordinated to one single thing, the realization of the Kingdom of God upon earth." And this one phrase, the kingdom of God, sums up his whole ministry and his whole life's work. So it doesn't get any more... uh, It's a huge deal. Yeah. And yet we don't hear very often about it in church. Why do you think that is? I I think it's hard to understand. And I also think there's it's sneaky in that it's one of those things where we say to ourselves, oh, I understand that, and then we don't realize, no, I don't really understand that. that. What's interesting is that uh, the kingdom is mentioned 37 times wow. in the Gospel of Matthew alone, and in all four Gospels it's mentioned 86 times, and it, then it's referred to a bunch of other times in a kind of an oblique way. And when you think about what Jesus was actually suggesting he was bringing, it's an actual form of a real government, a structured, organized entity that carries with it the authority of God uh, as part of it. And it, it's he, w- he was making this point so distinctly that when when the government rulers, government and religious rulers, talk, heard him talk about bringing the kingdom of God on earth, they got scared. This is one of the primary reasons they killed him. Why they conspired to kill him, they thought that he was going to overthrow the power structure, and he was. <laughs> they just didn't realize he was going to do it in a way that they didn't expect. They thought he was going to, like an insurrectionist, overthrow the, the positions of power in the culture because he wanted to bring the kingdom of God. So they they made the translation, oh, I think I know what he means, he's going to overthrow our government. Uh, the other, the last little point here is that this all this talk about the kingdom of God, uh, historians uh, also will point out that he was really extending the message of the Old Testament into the New Testament, in that the whole of the Old Testament really can be seen as the coming kingdom of God, the the preparation for the kingdom of God, the the, the on-ramp into the kingdom of God is the Old Testament. One of the reasons why in our Jesus-centered Bible, which, by the way, if you don't have a Jesus-centered Bible, I, I beg you to check it out, because it has been life-transforming for many, many people to have gotten this Bible and read it, because it draws them into a um, greater intimacy with Jesus just because of the, the features that we've included in this Bible. But one of the ones that has gotten the most attention is in the Old Testament— the, we have highlighted in blue type places throughout the Old Testament that point to Jesus in some way. And then with each place that's highlighted, we have a, a little blue box that highlight, that explains the connection that we found. And we have a, about 700 of these places throughout the Old Testament, so it's hard to open the Old Testament and not find one of these little blue boxes. Well, the point of this is to highlight how the Old Testament is really pointing toward the coming kingdom of God, who is Jesus. Jesus brings it with him. So the point of this is to be reading the Old Testament and get the message of the Old Testament. Oh yeah, it's pointing forward to Jesus. So 
given all that, let's uh, spend the rest of our time just focusing on some of the things that Jesus taught about the cultural differences of the kingdom, so we can start to get a kind of a flavor, kind of like, uh, Becky, your story about getting a flavor of this difference in Mexico when you went there. What is the flavor of the difference? So one way to start off, kick off this a little bit, is this encounter Jesus has with Nicodemus, the, the religious leader who's very learned, an older man, highly respected in the religious community, who comes to Jesus in secret to ask him questions because he's intrigued by, by what Jesus has to say. And along the way, Jesus says, well, Nicodemus, you know that you were born once of the flesh, but you're going to have to be born again of the Spirit. And Nicodemus goes like, what? Uh, I can't enter my mother's womb. What are you talking about? And Jesus said, what I'm talking about is, yes, you've been born once into the kingdom of this world, but you, you have to be born again into the kingdom of God. And that's a birth that's born of the Spirit, not of the flesh. So Nicodemus is trying to get his mind around this, just like we are, but Jesus is saying that we need a born-again experience because uh, his intention is that we would not only live in the kingdom of God, but live out its values in our everyday life. So being born of the Spirit means to live in the kingdom of God. So here are some parables in Matthew 13 that Jesus tells, and their express purpose is to help people understand the culture of the kingdom of God and how it's different from the culture they've grown to ex expect. So, so let me just read one, and then... Uh, Becky, while I'm reading this, if you could think through what uh, contrary aspect of the kingdom of God Jesus is trying to highlight by telling this story. So the first one is in Matthew uh, 13, verse 24. It's the parable of the wheat and the weeds. It goes like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night, as the workman slept... His enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat, and then he slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. Well, the farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked? No, he replied, you'll uproot the wheat if you do. So here's what we need to do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles, and burn them, and to put the wheat in the barn. So there's Jesus telling a story that he doesn't explain, that he's intending to help us understand something that's different about the kingdom of God than the kingdom of the world. So what did you think when you were listening to that, Becky? Well, when I was looking um, for research on like what kind of information was out there for people who were more the subjects of living in a kingdom, one the one thing that I did find was that the majority at this time, the majority of people who lived in kingdoms were farmers. They were fishermen. They they lived far away. They may have never even go into the kingdom that they were a part of. They may never even see royalty or deal with it. And so I think that Jesus often resorted to everyday parables because it was easy for them to understand the difference. And so we live in a self-help culture that is focused on you helping yourself. Mm. 
Um, and I think that that's the culture that we are in. It, in. I think if Jesus was here today and he was trying to make the same point, he would talk about the self-help culture that we often are driven directly to Barnes and Noble to the self-help aisle to help us with whatever we want. You could call it the weed pulling aisle. The weed pulling aisle. And the difference here is he's saying, look, I'm 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 not so black and white about this. I know you have things going on in your life and I know that there's things that we need to work out, but I'm the harvester. And so I'm the one who's going to to sort that all out when it comes time to harvest. And I think that's just a completely contrary message to what we hear. In fact, I, I could just see Jesus coming into this culture today and having that same kind of conversation, but relating it to our our constant um, drive towards self-help. I love that you made that connection. And if you think about it even bigger, so what in this parable is the farmer really after? The farmer wants wheat to grow. The farmer wants a good crop. He's saying, if you pull the weeds out now, you're going to pull the weed out with it. Let them grow up together and help the wheat to grow strong. In fact, if you grow the wheat strong, the weeds will diminish if the wheat grows strong. So his real intention is a harvest of wheat. So if you think about this in terms of how you just described this too, Becky, that we have both growing in us. We have truth and strength growing in us, and we have weeds. And we're very aware of them, and that's why we run to the bookstore and try to, let me figure out how I can pull as many weeds as I can. What if Jesus' intention in this is in the kingdom of God, what we do is we focus on what we're for, far more than what we're against. Mm -hmm. That's what we do, because by focusing on what we're for and trying to grow that strong, we diminish the impact of the thing that we're against. And if you grow strong wheat in someone, can it overshadow the weeds that are growing up at the same time. And the thing that you said here, which I think is profound, is can we can we trust God to take care of those weeds? Instead of trusting ourselves to take care of the weeds, we trust him to convict us, to bring us through circumstances that will yank those weeds up, but it's his timing, his way, not our way, that those weeds get yanked up, and we get with the program and just say, I'm going to try to grow. <laughs> I'm going to try to grow as much truth and strength in myself as possible. I'm going to partner with you, Jesus. I know you're trying to grow that wheat. I will too. Um, so that's a fascinating difference in the kingdom of God. And, and it would have sounded offensive, remember, in the context of this culture, which was all about weed pulling. Think about all of the rules and regulations the Pharisees came up with yeah. to try to make sure sin didn't happen in people. People were pulling weeds left and right all day long. The greatest weed pullers were the Pharisees. Jesus reserves his greatest criticism for the Pharisees, who are the chief weed pullers. So Jesus, like you said, Becky, had a more relaxed attitude. Not that he doesn't hate sin, yeah. but he, he's for something else. So let's read a second one, another. Matthew 13, by the way, if you just camp in Matthew 13, maybe this is something that if you want to extend this throughout the week this week— just read in Matthew 13, uh, and that's the only place you read in if you're going to do any Bible reading this week, and expose yourself to these kingdom of God parables that Jesus tells, and and let him show you deeper meaning than even we're talking about right now. So the next one is the parable of the mustard seed. It goes this way, the kingdom of heaven, so this is exactly what we're talking about, the kingdom, he's saying the, 
the kingdom of heaven is like, he's saying, the culture that I come from, the culture that the Trinity created, here's what it's like. It's like a mustard seed planted in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of garden plants. It grows into a tree, and birds come and make nests in its branches. What a crazy little story. So when you hear that, Becky, what do you think of? What, what is he trying to get at here? What cultural truth or reality do you think he's trying to highlight? So I was thinking how the disciples really thought that Jesus was going to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth and that it was going to be this massive, immediate takeover. I think that we even still kind of expect that. Obviously, we just spent the last month doing um, episodes on the supernatural. We went through Revelation and we talked about end time predictions. And what he's saying is what we're used to is when kingdoms are taken over, it's this massive, huge change that happens all at once. And he's saying the kingdom of heaven is small and it grows in its own time. But once it does get big, it gets massive and it takes over, but it takes it takes time. And that was that would just be contrary. Like why if you were going to take over a kingdom, it would happen immediately. And I think what he's trying to say here is that this is going to happen over time. That's good. Yeah, I mentioned that we did the, the Future of the Church Summit last week in our building, and, and one of the things that I was asked to do was create the closing for that uh, three-day experience. So I was thinking about the kingdom of God and the values of the kingdom of God relative to this as a parable, the parable of the mustard seed. Jesus tells several parables like this where he's trying to highlight how a little thing it can make a huge difference. He also talks about a little bit of leaven in the dough makes the whole lump of dough rise, or a little bit of salt that you put into your meal flavors the whole thing. He's trying in many different ways. It's interesting, this particular point he's trying to make, he probably spent more time trying to describe this kingdom of God truth than any other one, that a little thing can make a huge difference is a truth in the kingdom of God. So in the closing for the Future of the Church Summit, part of it was getting in touch with how a little thing can make a big difference, and I asked people eventually to ask Jesus, what is something that they experienced during the three days of the summit that they believe is like salt or light, that is contrary to the whole and is so different that it could bring change. What is something they're taking away from this experience that's like that? And then once they had arrived at that, I had a big map up in the front of the room, and we had these little stick-on lights that if you pull the tab on them, they're like a little like a little glow stick light, little ball of light, and they had a little sticky thing on the end. And I invited people to come up thinking about the thing that they were taking with them, that little thing that could make a big difference back home, um, thinking about that as they came up and they stuck their little ball of light on the map where they come from. And I had the whole room dark. So as one by one people came up and they stuck their little ball of light on the map, eventually you see the, the room take on a glow from this light at the end. And I, and I, I talked about... Um, what it feels like to live in darkness. And if you just bring your little light, and all of us do that, look at how it illuminates the darkness and can set people free and help them to see the truth instead of live in the darkness. So it was an attempt 
to live out this kingdom of God truth in the lives of these people, and my hope is that they would go home thinking more highly of the little thing they have to give. Instead of diminishing it and thinking, I can't really make a big difference, that they would begin to start thinking in a kingdom of God way, which is, even me, little old me, can make a huge difference if what I'm bringing is a little bit of light. Which would also be very contrary, because if you were just a simple farmer in the kingdom, you would never think that you could actually have any impact on the on the decisions of that kingdom. You would not be called to, you know, get, cast your vote or give input. Nobody would be coming out to survey your area to find out how they could better serve you. So that idea was probably very contrary to them that that they would have some sort of impact or be able to have some sort of um, impact on the world around them. Let's do one more uh, to close off our podcast. The last one. Um, in in uh, my Jesus-centered Bible, they're both put under the same heading of the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl. So let's read these two real quick, and um, then Becky, I'll ask you what you take from this one. The kingdom of heaven, again, he's describing the culture that the Trinity created. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and he bought it. So two kind of curious little, uh, almost one-sentence illustrations of a, a person coming across a thing of inestimable value, just in tremendous value, and apparently no one else sees it. And so they sacrifice everything to get it. it. It makes me feel like I'm trying to put myself in the position of like this this farmer. Um, and their their life was a lot of work. What I what I did read is that they had very little to do anything leisurely. They mostly just worked, worked, worked. And so I think about somebody who's working that hard to feed their family and that they find a pearl in a field and then they just decide to sell everything just so that they can have nothing with this pearl, it probably to them seemed like, what? How could that be worth it? How could that be worth it when I would have nothing but this pearl? That would be it in my entire world. So so, so what it implies here is, is that, that the, so valuable. the person understands the value. Mm-hmm. The only reason this behavior makes sense is that the person in his parable understands the treasure buried in the field and the pearl that the merchant comes across. It's interesting that it says it's a merchant who's looking for choice pearls. So this is somebody who knows a valuable pearl when they see it, and they're looking for a bargain. They're looking for an overlooked treasure that they can buy, and it will be of incredible value. And the person in the treasure example just happens upon this treasure, digs it up, realizes how valuable it is and buries it again before anyone knows how 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 valuable the treasure buried in that field is he goes and buys the field because nobody else understands the value that's buried in the field but him so this is an interesting it's so fascinating to me what Jesus is trying to say here I think is in the kingdom of God people pay attention to what's really valuable and when they see what's really valuable 
they sacrifice their life for it. They'll give up everything else. Yes, and back to this, what I opened with, with this whole uh, comparison to the Lord of the Rings story that Tolkien created, that is the story embedded also in that myth, which is when people understand the treasure of, of what, what is at stake, they are willing to risk their lives to protect it and to gain it. It's really the only reason we really risk everything is when we have accurately determined the value of that thing that we're laying our life down for. So he's, it's just such a—to me, it's such a winsome invitation for us to better value, to better assess the value of Jesus himself. I mean, that's really, in the end, I think it's the purpose of our podcast, that we would, in, in a, like a thousand different ways, invite this community to properly assess the treasure that Jesus is. Because once we've done that, oh, we're willing to lay down our life then, when we understand what a treasury is. I just heard the story last night, I'll just close with this, I was at a—we did trick-or-treating um, last night, and my youngest daughter is uh, just getting almost so old that she might not go next year, but they dressed up as the characters from Phineas and Ferb, and it was a lot of fun, and uh, we always go to our close friend's house uh, for trick-or-treating. And uh, it's a tradition. We have chili together. We hang out after trick-or-treating. It's just a great—I I just have such warm feelings about this tradition that, that our families have. And they invite all of their extended relatives, you know, to come. It's just kind of a, a fantastic get-together every Halloween. And when we got back, uh, Bev and I went with all of the, the high schoolers around the neighborhood trick-or-treating. So when we got back after an hour or so, my friend wanted to tell me a story— of a neighbor she saw at her door while we were gone. That neighbor was following the kids around the neighborhood, and she hadn't seen th- this neighbor for a while because he, had, he was an alcoholic, and his alcoholism had led to serious health issues and the separation in his marriage. Um, and he was no longer living at home in the neighborhood, so she hadn't seen him for a while. And she saw that he looked healthy when he looked like he was about to die the last time she saw him. And she said, oh my gosh, uh, you look great. What happened to you? And he just spoke out as boldly as he could, I found the Lord. And she said, what? (laughs) He said, I found Jesus. I, I, I now know that I'm loved by Jesus, and I'm as happy as I've ever been. And my friend said, well, what's happening in your relationship with your wife? He said, I have asked her to forgive me, but I understand she might not ever because of what I've done. So every day I pray for her that she can recover trust, but I understand she may never because of what I've done. But I am the happiest I've ever been because I've discovered Jesus. Mm. So in our neighborhood, this was an extraordinary thing to say on somebody's front porch with a bunch of other people around. It just doesn't happen that often. So I'm sitting there listening to my friend tell me this story, and I said, you know what? When people are that desperate, they understand the treasure they've just been given. They, more than anyone else, get it. Wow, I found Jesus. And they can't help themselves. They'll say it because it's true. I found a treasure that has changed my life, and I've never been happier. That's called evangelism. (laughs) But it's the organic kind. 
when you can't stop this from bubbling over, and it's expressly because you've understand the, understood the value of the pearl and the value of the treasure in the field. That's why you bubble over. If you're listening to this right now and you're saying, this is me right now, this is where I'm at, this is why I'm listening to this podcast, I want to encourage you to join our Facebook group called The Pigs. This is a group of people who are just that. They are all in. They have discovered the treasure. They want to know more and more about Jesus. Um, It's a delightful community of just really honest sharing and genuine loving community. So you guys can find out more about that by clicking on um, the link to join the pigs here. We highly recommend that you um, join this group because um, it's maybe it's just the next thing for you to do. Maybe you've been listening for a while, and this is the next thing yeah, you need to str- do. Yeah, the strange name, for those of you who are just listening for the first time, the strange name comes from a chapter in my book, The Jesus-Centered Life, called Living a Pig's Life. And it's simply the difference between, at breakfast time, the pig gives everything for the meal, but the but the chicken just gives an egg. Um, so what is it? what would it be like to give everything? Um, as a pig. So that's why it's named that way. So if you want to explore what a life is like when you give all, inexplicably, miraculously, you give all of your heart to Jesus and the transformation that results when you do, this is a community for you. So hey, everyone, thanks for listening. And you know, uh, uh, Becky and I, uh, you're not just faceless to us. We, because of the pigs group, we know who some of you are. Mm-hmm. And we think about you guys often. And and for those of you who do feel like you're in this place of darkness, where maybe, maybe the treasure of Jesus might be accurately assessed because you're really in need of treasure, we're inviting you to take a next step, whatever that might look like, to, to get to know Jesus a, a little better so that it will become natural for you to invite him into your dark place. Remember, you can find out more information about everything we've talked about, um, but in further detail uh, on the JesusCenterLife.com site. So you can go there. You can find our podcast section. Uh, if you're going to look for this one, you look for Season 2, Episode 44, and that's how you can get the links to things that we've talked about. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye.